Amen. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 13 through 15 today as we continue to walk through Paul's letter to the Galatians together. If you've been with us, you know the ground we have covered. We've looked at how Paul is confronting a false teaching and false teachers that were there in Galatia. Uh, Paul had initially shared the gospel in Galatia. The church had begun there. People had responded to the gospel. But after he left, there were false teachers who came in. Uh, There were Judaizers who came in. And they taught the Galatians that in order to truly be a part of God's people, they had to go back to the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. And they had to follow the Mosaic Law. So for example, uh, we see passages like those in Acts that that have these people claiming that unless you were circumcised, you cannot be saved. That's an issue that Paul has been dealing with in his letter to the Galatians. And so he's been reminding them that the genuine gospel teaches that we are saved by faith, not by works. And that we must reject all false gospels and all false teachings. And now Paul is directing his attention in this letter to showing what does it look like now to live in this freedom. Now that we're not under the burden of the law, what does it look like to live in the freedom Christ offers us. And so we're going to be looking at that more specifically in Galatians 5, verses 13 through 15. And out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to this morning, if you would stand as I read the Scripture for us. And this is what the Holy Spirit of God says through the Apostle Paul. This is God's Word to His church. And this is what it says. For you were called to freedom, brothers... Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If you would, pray with me please. Father God, we thank You that You have given us Your Word, that we are not left to live according to our conscience, that we are not left to live according to how we might feel on any given day, but we are called to live under the authority of Your Word. So Father, we pray that You would teach us from it how we are to live, and that You would empower us to live as You've called us to live through Your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I always find it interesting to learn about different places, different cities around the world and here in our own country. So many places that I've never visited, but in this day and age you can watch different programs, get on the internet, read books, learn about all kinds of places. And and some are rather unique, rather interesting. One that caught my eye not long ago was out in the badlands of California, a place I've never been, but I was reading more about it. There's an area there. Uh, that's an abandoned World War II barrack. It used to be uh, essentially a naval barrack during World War II. It's long since been abandoned. There's no power, there's no uh, water, there's no uh, sanitation out there, but it's become uh, kind of this, this area where people now gather and set up tents, set up RVs and live. It's called Slab City. 
And what's interesting and rather unique about Slab City, in fact, what they pride themselves on there, is that along with not having electricity and water and modern conveniences, they also have no law. In fact, they pride themselves on being anarchists. And as you can imagine, living in this community, it is rather chaotic. And when you take the law away, when you take civil law away specifically, often what you're left with is anarchy and chaos. Now, you don't have to go to Slab City to see this. You think, for example, of what we see often when there's a natural disaster. Uh, recently, we're, we've been in this hurricane season. There's been hurricanes on the coast of North Carolina, hurricanes in Florida, and some of these areas have just been leveled and decimated. There's no utilities, there's no power, there's no water, and oftentimes that there's very little resource when it comes to law enforcement because they're stretched so thin. And oftentimes when that law is removed, when the people aren't there to protect their property themselves, we have chaos we have anarchy we have people living however they choose to live and doing whatever they choose to do as we come to Paul's letter to the Galatians we're dealing with a different type of law we're dealing with the mosaic law but we're very much dealing with a claim from the Judaizers that if you remove the mosaic law you're going to have chaos If you remove the Mosaic Law, people are just going to live however they want to live and things will be chaotic. And so what Paul is addressing now to the Galatians is what life should look like when we're no longer under the burden of the law. And he's responding to those who say, well, no, you've got to have the law, you've got to have works, because if you take these things away, you're just going to have chaos. Paul says, no, we're not going to have chaos what we truly should have is Christ-like living. And so we're going to look in these verses today and in the remaining chapters that we're going to look at in Paul's letter here in the coming weeks and months at how Paul now unpacks how the Gospel should affect how we live. There shouldn't be chaos. There should be Christ-likeness. And so we'll begin there with the first point in your outline for today. This reminder from verse 13 that The Gospel does not free us to live however we want. The Gospel does not free us to live however we want. Paul tells the Galatians here in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. This freedom Paul speaks of stands in contrast to the Mosaic Law. Paul is saying very clearly, you're no longer under this Mosaic Law. You're no longer under this ceremonial law. And those who would try to get you to go under it, they are enslaving you. That's the language that Paul has used in his letter to the Galatians so far. That's why in Galatians chapter 2, he speaks of these false brothers. He speaks of these false teachers Almost as if they are creeping in and sneaking in and trying to lure the people into this slavery, into this burden where they bring themselves under the Mosaic Law. And the question we should ask is, why were the Judaizers so concerned about the Mosaic Law? Now we've already looked quite a bit at how the Judaizers felt that you would achieve righteousness through your works. They believed in a works-based righteousness. And so you observe the Old Testament law, 
you observe the Mosaic law in order to then be righteous before God. And we've talked about how we, we, we can't achieve righteousness through works. It only comes through faith. And then works should result from that faith. That's one of the reasons, probably the primary reason the Judaizers taught so much about the law. But there's another part to it. You see, the Judaizers believed that the law was the only thing restraining people from living however they'd want to live. In other words, what they felt was, well, if you remove the Mosaic law, if you just tell people they're saved by grace and now they can live however they want, well, they're going to live however they want. They're going to run out there and they're going to embrace sin if we take them out from under the law. And so they felt that what Paul was doing by teaching the Galatians that you're no longer under the burden of the law, in essence, they felt like Paul was promoting lawlessness. That he was promoting this type of living. So notice how Paul responds. Verse 13, he says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Paul makes it very clear here that as Christians, we have freedom. As Christians, we have Christian liberty. But he's very clear to say, don't use that freedom, don't use that liberty as a license to sin. Here he says, don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh. This is reiterated by Peter in 1 Peter 2.16 where he writes, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You see, there are some who as Christians will embrace their Christian liberty to the extent that they will use that liberty then as a license to sin. This idea that, well, I've been forgiven, God's forgiven me, so I can just go live now however I choose to live. Paul says that is not gospel freedom. We read in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, Paul says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And so what we find here is a rather slippery slope when it comes to Christian liberty. See, there are many who grow up in a legalistic environment. And in that legalistic environment, they're told all kinds of things they're not to do. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. You know, good Christians don't do this. This is sin. Don't do this. And all they hear is no. And then, when they come to the gospel of grace and come to understand and embrace the gospel, many times they'll revisit some of those things and find they weren't so bad. But they can be if misused. I was thinking about this as I thought about a man I knew once who grew up in a very legalistic environment where any discussion of alcohol was sin. All alcohol was bad. All alcohol was sin. Only sinful people would consider drinking. And so he had nothing to do with alcohol in his adolescence and his youth. He, he became a believer while he was in college. And then after becoming a believer and revisiting some of these things, he started to think, well, you know, all alcohol must not be bad. He started looking at the Scriptures. He started realizing there's liberty here. And so he would have an occasional drink here and there. But over time, an occasional drink became a couple of occasional drinks and over time, a couple of occasional drinks became drunkenness. And the Scripture is very clear about the sin of drunkenness. And over time, he became addicted to alcohol. What he did was he took a liberty and he ended up using it as a license to sin. 
and to indulge himself. Paul here is warning against that very thing. He is warning us against using our liberty to indulge ourselves in a way that will lead as an opportunity to the flesh that will lead us to be enslaved to the flesh. He says this is not what we are to do. Rather, notice what he says we are to do with our freedom. Verse 13. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but, but through love serve one another. Here Paul draws a line, I believe, and gives us the, the opposite of what it means to indulge ourselves. See, that's what sin so often is. Sin is self-gratification. Sin is indulging myself. Sin is acting on what I think. Saying what I think. Sin often is acting out in anger. Losing our temper. Responding in ways that our flesh desires. We are indulging in saying yes to the flesh. But notice what Paul says here. We are to use our freedom not to serve ourselves and serve our flesh. We are to use our freedom to serve others. You see, the Gospel calls us not to say yes to the desires of our flesh, but actually to say no to the desires of our flesh. The Gospel calls us to deny ourselves. It's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 9. He says, if anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. So fundamentally, Jesus says, if you want to follow Him, you're going to have to tell yourself no. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to have to deny what is carnal in you, what is desirous in you. You're going to have to say no to the flesh. And rather, you're going to have to say yes to Him. He says, whoever would save his life will indeed lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. See, here we see that line drawn where the world says, look out for yourself. The world says, nobody else is going to get your back. You've got to take care of yourself. You're number one. The cross says the exact opposite. The cross says, deny yourself. Lose yourself. Don't serve yourself. Rather, Use the freedom and liberty you've been given to serve one another. That's why Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And what is the prime example of this in the Scripture? It is our Lord Jesus Himself. We see Jesus came not to be served, He came to serve others. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give His life as a ransom for many. You see, this is a picture of what the Gospel is. We see very clearly in the Scripture that every one of us is a sinner. All of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. The Gospel message is not that I'm better than you or you're better than someone else. The Gospel message is that we are at a level playing field and that we all fall short of God's glory. And not just that, we deserve the wrath of God. The Scripture says the wages of sin is death. 
We all deserve to go to an eternal hell and to have God's wrath poured out on us for all eternity. That's what the Scripture teaches us. But God is so gracious that He put His Son who deserved no death, His Son who committed no sin on the cross, and He took our penalty for us. Why? Because the Son of Man came to serve. And the Son of Man came to die in our place. And in doing that, the Son of Man gives us the opportunity to have eternal life in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus dies for our sin so that we can die to our sin. Jesus serves us in His death so that we can serve Him in our life. Jesus frees us then not to live however we want, but live for the glory of God. Which brings us to the second point there in your outline. You see, the Gospel frees us then to live according to God's will. Look again to verse 14. Paul says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now remember, the Judaizers were telling the Galatians, you've got to live under the law. And so what does Paul say here? Well, let me just take all of the law and boil it down for you. And you know where Paul gets this, don't you? It's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus was so often confronted by those who, who wanted to silence Him, who wanted to test Him. And we see one situation there in Matthew chapter 22 where it says one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question. And said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, Jesus says, depend all the law and the prophets. And so we see all the law comes down to loving God and loving others. When we studied the Ten Commandments, we looked at how the first four commandments come down to loving God. And it's only through loving God that we can then follow through on those other commandments that have to do with loving each other. And so Paul picks up on this and says, listen, if you really want to obey the law, if you really want to do what the law says, then you need to love one another and serve one another. And this is consistent with what we read throughout the New Testament. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Friends, this is the will of God. I want you to think about that for a moment. So often as a pastor, I'm asked by people about God's will. I've had lots of conversations about pe- with people trying to figure out well, what is God's will. So often that's the question we ask. You know, what, which job is God's will? Which uh, person should I spend the rest of my life with? What, what decision should I make here in my business? I can either go this direction or this direction. Well, which is God's will? Well, we're faced with a health crisis in our life. How do we pray? How do we know what is God's will? That there are many places where it's hard to discern. Where we really wrestle with this issue of God, I want to know what your will is. God, what is your will? And there are other places where God just makes it very clear to us. Here's what my will is. 
That there's no need to wrestle through it. There's no gray area here. There's no searching to try to understand it. It's just clearly jumping out of the pages of Scripture. Here is my will. And one of those things over and over and over again is this command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the Gospel frees us in order to do this. You see, when we live according to a works-based righteousness, we try to love others out of duty. So we find ourselves saying things like, well, I've just got to love them because you know, that's what a good Christian does. <laughs> I've just got to. I've got to do it. We talk about it like it's this, this duty, this burden. And friends, that's what a works-based righteousness brings us to. But what the Gospel does is frees us so that when we, then we actually desire to do these things. We, we want to show others love because we realize the love that God has shown us. See, the Gospel doesn't free us to go live however we want. The Gospel frees us to live according to God's will. The Scripture says to us, we will always have a Master. And that Master will either be sin, or that Master will be the Lord. But we don't just get to choose what we're going to do. So we have to decide, will we be mastered by sin or will we seek to serve the Lord? And there's a beautiful picture of this in the book of Exodus. And you may recall when we were walking through Exodus and got to Exodus 21 there, we talked about the laws concerning slaves. Now again, at this point in the Old Testament, when we were talking about slavery, for the most part, we're talking about people who were so indebted that they would enslave themselves. And so they owed so much money, they would go to a master and say, I'm going to serve you for this amount of time to pay off my debt. They would become their servant, their slave. Well, in Exodus chapter 21, we read about this ordinance that stipulated if a Hebrew were to enslave himself to another Hebrew, then after six years, that master had to release that slave, that servant. After six years, they had to say, okay, your debt's paid at this point, you are free to go. But there was an ordinance that stipulated that that servant might so want to serve that master. They might find it so pleasing to serve that master. They may desire to serve that master. They could go back to the master and say, I want to be your bond servant. I want to be your servant for life. And they would actually be marked in their ear as a bond servant, as a servant for life. They would choose to enslave themselves. Why? Out of their love for the master and their love of serving this master. The Scripture says this is a picture of the Gospel. We realize that God is who we want to serve. And we use our Christian freedom, as those Hebrew slaves did, to permanently surrender our freedom to go live however we want in order to serve the Master that we love. This is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 22, but now that you've been set free from sin, you've become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. And so when our focus is truly on growing more and more like Jesus, the desire of our heart is to serve the Father. And so we are not to live however we want. We're to use our freedom to live according to God's will. And again, what is God's will? It is to love our neighbor as ourself. And so the natural question that follows then is, who is my neighbor? 
And hopefully that question sounds familiar to you. And that's the very question that Jesus has asked in Luke chapter 10 when this issue comes up. When Jesus is teaching these very things and people respond with, okay, I'm to love my neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? Because probably between us in this room, we've got some neighbors that are a lot more lovable than others. (laughs) And so it's easy for us in the flesh to go, okay, well, if I can just identify who my neighbor is, this will be an easier command to follow. Well, you may remember that's when Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. You remember that parable? Jesus says there's a man walking along roadside and he is robbed and he is beaten and he is left for dead. And there on the roadside, on this journey, there he is left for dead and a priest walks by. Jesus says as that priest walks by, he sees that half dead man, that beaten man laying there and he just keeps walking. He doesn't stop to help him. Jesus says next there's a Levite, a religious leader, and as he's walking, he sees that man half dead, beaten, bleeding on the ground, and that Levite, he just keeps walking. And then Jesus says there's a Samaritan. Someone in who his culture would have looked, been looked down on. Someone the priest and the Levites would have considered themselves much better than. But it is that Samaritan who not only goes over to this man and cares for this man, but actually takes him to an innkeeper and takes money out of his pockets and does everything he can to ensure this man is taken care of. And then Jesus asked this question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, you go and do likewise. See, what Jesus was doing through this parable was He was saying the question we should be asking is not who is my neighbor. The question we should be asking is who am I? And how do I respond to the needs of others in my life? Am I one who just walks by and sees it and ignores it and has a whole list of reasons why I'm not going to get involved? Or am I one that runs to those in need and shows them mercy and shows them compassion? Because friends, that is a fruit of the Gospel. That is Gospel living when we show mercy because you and I have been shown mercy. You've heard us talk about before the difference between grace and mercy. Grace is that unmerited favor of God where God richly pours out His blessing in our life. Not because we deserve it but because of His grace. And mercy is when God holds something back that we do deserve. Now, we deserve punishment for our sin. And we deserve the wrath of God for our sin, but in God's mercy, He holds that back and He unleashes that on Jesus on the cross. Mercy is showing compassion. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. In that parable, this man on the ground has done nothing to deserve the kindness of the Samaritan. It is only through his mercy and his compassion that he helps him. The question Jesus is putting before us is the reminder that God has shown us mercy. So who are we showing mercy to? Are we a people who are compassionate to others? Because this should be a fruit in our life. Which brings us to the third point there in your outline. The fruit of the Gospel is evident in how we treat one another. The fruit of the Gospel is evident in how we treat one another. 
And so what Paul does here is he says, because of the gospel work in our life, we are to show mercy as we've been shown mercy. We are to show compassion as we've been shown compassion. We are to forgive because we've been forgiven. We are to love because God has so loved us. And what is the opposite of that? When you show mercy, you don't give what someone deserves. What's the opposite of that? Giving them what they deserve. (laughs) Keeping score. Keeping a tally. Well, they said this to me, and so I'm going to say this to them. Well, they did this to me, so I'm going to do this to them. Or they did this, and so I'm never going to do for them again. The opposite of mercy, sadly, is when we do what Paul says in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. When you bite and devour, Paul says. He uses here graphic language. It's almost like Paul is watching the animal channel and he's watching beasts just go at it and devour one another. And he's saying, friends, when we're not merciful in the church of Jesus Christ, that's what we look like. We go after one another. We keep score. You might respond to that and say, well, Pastor, you don't understand the people I've got to deal with and the situations I've been in. and You don't understand how many times this person did this or this person said this. And you're right, I don't. But God does. And if we want to keep tally, let's start a tally about our own sin. The Scripture says God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners... So there's a tally there of our sin. There's a tally there of our unrighteousness. And rather than giving us what we deserve, God shows us mercy. And friends, a fruit of the Gospel is when we embrace that to the point that we realize God has shown us such forgiveness and such mercy. Who are we to withhold that from another? I'm not saying that there's no consequence for sin. I'm not saying that when someone breaks the law, they shouldn't be punished. But what I'm saying is, when it comes to our heart towards other people, are we compassionate people? Are we known for the mercy we show to one another? Because you've basically got this line and two choices. On one end, you've got this side of compassion where we are forgiving and where we are loving and where we are preaching the Gospel to one another. Where we are quick to forgive one another's fault. Where we are quick to pray for one another and encourage one another in love and good deeds. And on the other side of that line, we've got division. We've got dissension. We've got divisiveness. We've got backbiting. We've got gossip. We've got, what did you hear about so-and-so? <laughs> well, I'll never forgive them for that. And we've got all types of fights and all types of quarrels and all types of stuff on this end. Let me ask you a question. How does the world see the church of Jesus Christ today? Does the world look to the church and say, man, I can't believe how well they get along. <laughs> I mean, I know some of the people in that church and they don't agree on this, this, but man, they just something, something about that church, it just kind of brings them together and they actually love each other. It just amazes me to see that witness. Or is the testimony so often, well, I've heard about that church. I've heard about that one splitting. Well, I know the people there. I was talking to somebody recently who was 
sharing a story of someone who come to faith in Christ, but leading up to them coming to faith, they came to faith later in their life, they would often say to this person when they would invite them to their church, well, I'm just as good as all the people up there. I know what they're like. So often we're known more by our faults and our sins and our divisions. And, and again, we, we, we've talked about these things before. There, there is no perfect church. If there was, you would mess it up by going to it. And I would too. But, but there should be a, a fruit of the Gospel, friends, that is evident for the world to see. And Paul says here, fundamentally in this fruit, that there should be a love for one another. There should be a serving one another. And all we do is fight and quarrel and pick and gossip about all these little things. What ultimately happens is we're going to shrivel up and die as a church. The Scripture is clear. The church of Jesus Christ will stand. Christ and His mission will go forward, but there's no promise that Bloomfield Baptist is going to stand. There's no promise that First Baptist here and Second Baptist there is going to stand. Because if we don't get this, if we don't live according to the Gospel, then what Paul clearly says, we will bite and we will devour and we will be consumed. And friends, there are churches every day of the week in our country that are shutting their doors because they have consumed one another. Because they lost their focus of the Gospel. Because they used their Christian freedom to serve themselves instead of serving others. Because they forgot that the greatest way we can serve others is by taking the Gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. They got so consumed about themselves that now they don't even have a church anymore. Paul says, may it never be so in Galatia. And friends, I say, may it never be so here at Bloomfield Baptist. May we be a church so committed to gospel living and to gospel fruit that we address these issues of sin. That we show mercy and forgiveness to one another. That we take the gospel to the nations. At least we have the testimony of so many others who are indeed consumed by one another. We are reminded from the Word over and over again of this charge. And I leave it with you today. John chapter 13, verse 35. Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, is your love so evident for other followers of Christ that the world sees it and takes note? 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers Whoever does not abides in death. If my heart and my focus is not set on the love of the brethren, then it may be that I've never experienced the love of God. It may be that the reason we so often have these problems in churches today is because so many in our churches aren't genuinely followers of Christ. You may struggle with unforgiveness and bitterness and a lack of compassion because you've never rightly responded to the compassion of the Father. And you can do that and fix that today by repenting and by trusting in Christ. The Word says, everyone who confesses Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, they will be saved. Take your focus off of everyone else who has wronged you and consider your sin this morning. Have you, been, have you been made right with the Father? 
And if not, deal with that today. And we can love others because God has loved us. 1 John 4.19 We love because He first loved us. And so friends, when we rightly understand this, we realize that the freedom that Christ gives us should not be something we use for self-indulgence. It should not be something we use for sin. It should be something that leads us to die for, to ourselves and to live for Jesus. And one of the ways we do that, Paul tells us here, is by loving one another and showing one another their mercy. Who do you need to show compassion to this week? Now this is a week of thanksgiving. This is a week for us to thank God for the many ways He has blessed us. It's a great practice for us as believers to take this time to thank God for the Gospel and for saving us. But it's also an opportunity to show the fruit of that Gospel. It may be this week that you're going to be around some people who need your mercy. It may be that you'll be around some people who need your compassion. That this holiday may be a reminder of people that perhaps you're not going to be around, but, but you need to forgive and you need to show mercy too because God has shown that mercy to you. And friends, that is a work that can only be accomplished by the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's, this week, let's thank Him for that Gospel and let's pray that His Spirit will help us to show the fruit of that Gospel as we gather with so many. If you would stand together as I pray for us that we would do those very things. Father, we do indeed thank You for the Gospel. We thank You for the cross. And Lord, we are very aware that the cross calls us to live very differently than our flesh so often desires. It is easy for us to say that that, that, that we're not going to show mercy, we're not going to show compassion because that person did this or didn't do this. Father, would You break us of these things? Would You help us to show forgiveness to others? Would You help us to show the fruit of the Gospel to others? Lord, would You help us to be thankful? Perhaps this is a thanksgiving when for some of us that there is much that has been lost. There is much, much to be anxious and worried about. Lord, in the midst of those things, would You help us to remember the promise of Your Word and of Your Gospel that there is a day coming when there is no more death and no more disease. That there is a day coming when You will make all things new. And Lord, would You help us to thank You in the midst of our suffering and pain as we long for and look forward to that day. Lord, would You help us to show love as You've shown us love. Would You help us to forgive as You have forgiven us. Would You help us to show mercy as You've shown us mercy. We ask that You would do these things in the name of our Lord Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.